Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochulillo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cochulillo, and today we're blessed with the have uh, author Jim Willis back with us today. Um, Jim has been a bit of an inspiration for me. I first interviewed him and um, we talked about, got really into like a lot of out of body experience type of discussion. And I told him about my own and we had similar experiences. And um, and he kind of got me obsessed with uh, the out of body experience. And that's why all of a sudden, like, like now I have about 50 or 60 episodes on out-of-body experience and near-death experiences um, because I, I think there's just a lot there that uh, can be discovered and also beneficial. Uh, so thanks for coming on, Jim. Oh, Gary, good to be with you again. Yeah. Um, a little a little different weather today that you've got than the last. I think last time we talked was in the summer. And I guess you're getting hit by snow right now, huh? <laughs> no, not in Alabama. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm I thought a... you were. I, I thought you were farther up north. I didn't realize that. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I'm from New Jersey, but I live in Alabama. That's what I. That's what I was thinking. So, yeah. so, yeah. so New Jersey, yeah, they're getting hit with snow pretty bad today. <laughs> and I'm glad I'm not a part of it. I'm tired of go. shoveling snow. Those those were um, those were uh, fun days to remember. I don't remember them being too fun to live through, but they're fun to remember. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the snow is nice when the first when while it's coming down, it's nice and you're inside and you're isolated. But afterwards, when you got to shovel it and drive in it and live in a frozen wasteland for three months, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, how are you? I'm doing real well. I'm doing real well. We're down here in South Carolina, and uh, I'm getting uh, Facebook uh, feeds from all my friends up north in New England, where I used to live, and uh, so I'm I'm enjoying the 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 sun the sun of South Carolina right now. But there's been a lot going on since the last time we talked. Yeah, a whole lot. Yeah, uh what a world. Uh, it's. Uh, you know, I can't, I can't uh, help but think how, uh, how stressed we are now. I guess we're getting used to it, but um, we've, it's, we've come across it gradually. But uh, what a different world than has happened since then when, when you and I last talked. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's strange how quickly everything kind of changed. Yeah. But um, it's also interesting and eye-opening, I think, in some ways. It is, and and I think it's all the more purpose for us to have some kind of, well, what I like to call a spiritual grounding as opposed to a materialistic grounding. Um, if we're grounded in the eternal or spirit or God or Manitou or Brahman or whatever the great religions mm -hmm. want to call it, it just gives us so much more depth to draw on during these difficult, difficult times. And um, I feel... Uh, I feel really bad for, for people who don't have um, any kind of that spiritual underpinning because without it, um, we are just, we're, we're in a very small boat in a very large ocean. And sometimes those waves can really toss us around. 
And I feel that that's what's happening now. Although uh, now I think I'm almost beginning to sense in some some uh, parts of the, the, the country and some parts of the world where I'm in touch with people that um, maybe we're starting to look up again. Uh, maybe there's hope after all. And uh, I'm, I'm really encouraged by that. I think that's what we have to hang on to. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I do believe that no matter what, there's hope, you know. Um, I, I mean, I, I think the, lo- the loss of life is, is, is always tough, the separation with people that you love. Um, but also, you know, and that's why I always think, the, you know, the topic that you cover is really important because uh, just because the body stops at a certain point doesn't necessarily mean that the human or, or the conscious experience ends. And um, when, when people are able to not even, I mean, I mean, they get to start listening, becoming curious, but this is something that people can experiment with and experience themselves. And after having those experiences, it changes the perception and takes away a lot of fear. Yeah, yeah. You know, as a, as a minister, as I said last time we talked, I was a, a Protestant minister for 40 years before I retired. And so, of course, I've had a chance to come across a lot of people who were who have died. I've done a lot of funerals and I've been at the bedsides of a lot of people who have died. Um, and so you would think I would get used to this. But in the last uh, three weeks, uh, we've had three people who I've had close relations with in the past, three good good friends in the past, who have died uh, from complications from the COVID thing. And it, if I didn't know for a fact that they are safe on the other side, um, it could get really depressing. Oh yeah. Um, I had a I had a, a good friend though one time. Uh, I got a call in the middle of the night, about three o'clock in the morning, from a nurse in a hospital. This is quite a few years ago. And she said uh, that a good friend of mine named Bradley was uh, not expected to live through the night and he was calling for me and wanted to know if I could, she wanted to know if I could get to the hospital. So of course I, I got up out of bed and got my clothes on, drove down to the hospital, walked into the room where he was hooked up to all the tubes and the, everything else, you know, and the oxygen and blood pressure and the dials and everything going off. And this, this, this man was a, a, a terrific example of, of, of uh, what a person should be. He had a, a couple of doctorates. He started a school, which is now a thriving university, a uh, pillar of the community. He made a small fortune along the way, a pillar of the church. He was a deacon in my church, um, led prayers, sang in the choir sometimes, did all that kind of stuff. Well, I, I, I could get right through to him. I, I didn't have to beat around the bush like we had to so much today. So I said, Bradley, are you ready to go? And uh, I expected that I'm ready. You know, God's going to take me. I'm going over the other side. I mean, this was a deeply mm-hmm. committed Christian man. Instead, he started to cry. And I said, Bradley, what, you know, what is it? What's wrong? And he said, Jim, I've done a lot of things in my life, except the one thing that's most important. And I said, what's that? And he said, I never prepared for this moment. Uh, he, he really knocked me over. Uh, uh, so we just talked and talked. Well, Bradley made it through that night and he made it through 10 more days. And I spent a little of every single day for the next 10 days with him before he passed. But it really taught me a lesson. As a matter of fact, now that I look back on those times of being with people 
as they die, I'm really kicking myself because back then I didn't really, even though I was a minister in name, I had a reverend in front of my name. I didn't have any real, dare I say, faith mm-hmm. of uh, in things like out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences. Um, it, if you had asked me at those times, I would have said, sure, I believe in heaven. You know, I, right. I believe we're all going to die and go to heaven someday. But I've, I've had a, a number of people, uh, more than a dozen people, I'm sure, who I, I was holding their hand and, and praying with them as they died. And then, of course, the machine would flatline and the nurses would come in and they would push me to the side and they would do all this stuff and thump them with the electric stuff and the charge and all that kind of stuff. And about a dozen times or so, I've had people come back from that. And when they were well enough to talk about it, I would ask them, uh, what was it like? And I thought I was there to comfort them. They would tell me stories like, um, uh, I saw a guardian angel, or I saw a light, Mm -hmm. or I saw uh, some kind of entity, depending on whether they were Christian or or not, they would use use the word angel or an entity of light, or in some cases, loved ones who have gone before. And to be honest, back in those days, I'm kicking myself now, but what I would do would I, I would say, oh, that's nice. You know, that's really great there. They were there for you. And I would be patronizing and, you know, patting him on the head and all that kind of stuff. Now, I wish I had taken advantage of that time. They could have taught me so much because now I'm convinced they did see people on the yeah, other side. They definitely. did see an angel or an entity or a light of some kind of, or they want to use to describe it. I could have learned so much and I could have, they could have given me so much hope and so much faith, but uh, at the time I wasn't ready for it, I guess, or I just wasn't open to it. Mm-hmm. Um, now I am. Now it's it's quite a bit different. Now having seen some of those entities myself, I've never had a, a near-death experience, but uh, I've had out-of-body experiences in which I was pretty sure I was gone, you know, uh, and uh, now it, it would be a totally different reality for me. Yeah, it really would. Yeah, for for me, it's like a question of like um, when I look at myself and look at my consciousness. Is you know, like, like if I ask myself, like, where does my consciousness begin and where does my consciousness end? Yeah, that, that's a a wild question. Oh, it sure is. It sure. The whole idea of the nature of consciousness, um, you know, the scientists are still arguing back and forth about whether consciousness originates in the brain um, or or not. I have come to the conclusion myself, and of course, there's no way you can prove anything of this with a science that's based here within this reality, but. I've come to the conclusion myself that, that that consciousness is the very ground of our being. Um, you can call it whatever you want. A lot yeah. of people are comfortable with the word God. Or, uh, in, I love the uh, the um, the whole Buddhist uh, or the Hindu concept rather of Brahman. Mm-hmm. That Brahman is the, the the name that cannot be expressed. If you think you've explained Brahman, you've missed it. Uh, you, it words cannot go there. Um, and I'm convinced that is that reality is consciousness and that these brains of ours are receivers of consciousness. It's kind yeah. of like when we when we uh, first stood in a 
a room, those of your listeners who are old enough to remember uh, television, little black boxes with <laughs> black and white TVs with antennas on the top. And we learned that when we took the antenna and held it in our hands and moved it around a little bit, we could change the picture on the screen. And that's when it first became known to us that all of these TV rays were shooting through our house all the time. Right, We were inundated with them. We uh -huh. just didn't know it. But then when we held the the, uh, the rabbit ears in our hand, they became, in effect, a, a dowsing rod that pointed mm -hmm. to these energies. And we could see the result right on the screen ahead in front of us. I'm, I'm convinced in my own mind, at least, that that's the way it is now, that these, these energies, uh, consciousness, uh, all kinds of energies that are above what we can experience and below what we can experience with our narrow range of the senses, all of these senses um, are, are coming through us. We live and are inundated by them. But evolution has just taught us that if we constantly were aware of them, we'd probably go crazy because there'd be too much information. So we have developed a very narrow band of light and hearing and touch and taste and seeing and all of that kind of thing. But um, boy, it's when, when, when you start to, to, to think about consciousness, I even find myself... Um, having a hard time with a, a word you just used when you said my consciousness i think about my consciousness it all may the time not even be my consciousness <laughs> my consciousness is this little narrow experience of the greater consciousness mm -hmm. it really is something in that yeah it, it's really mind-blowing but and uh i i do find some reassurance in, in, in thinking along those terms yeah. um yeah. Ra rather than um you know, and, and I'm sure as, as a minister, you can probably relate to this. Rather than uh, spending my life worrying about heaven and hell and, and, and you know, not being able to go back and, and change some of the bad things I did and, and, yeah, and regrets yeah. and, and just all that stuff. When, when I can look at my, my, my experience as just this endless line of consciousness and, yeah. and learn how to... Um, sometimes separate myself from 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 my body and, and view it from the outside. Yeah, um, it, it just takes a lot of that heaviness away. Yeah, as as a matter of fact, I think not only does it take the heaviness away, I think it adds a whole new dimension that is very practical in the sense of what we're all experiencing right now. Uh, there's a lot of bad in the year 2020. A lot of bad things happen. Yeah. And we like to say, oh, that was a mistake. But maybe if, if I can share this a little bit, there's a, a, a concept that I've developed that I like to call a slice of reality. And if you can just picture in your mind uh, a slice of well, an apple pie, for instance, some kind of pie that's round but it's spinning around and around and around like a vortex and that's life let's say mm -hmm. in the middle is where i like to call the source that's the absolute still point everything else on the outside and the farther out you go the faster it's spinning but in the middle there is that single point of stillness of of peace and that's what i like to call consciousness or god uh, I more comfortable now mm -hmm. with the term the source and the source is that place of perfect unity and that place of perfect oneness and perfect stillness. Everything is 
is is peace and and love and togetherness and oneness and unity but the one thing that you can't experience in the source is individuality right. how can there be individuality in a place of perfect unity mm -hmm. now if the source is the center of all things it has to become also the sense the source the center of individuality and what that means is that in order to experience individuality we have to leave the source and i think every single one of us has made a courageous decision to leave the source and we are just energy there mm -hmm. uh, but when we move out of the source the first place we go through is what i like to call consciousness uh, both stephen hawking and Albert Einstein referred to this as the mind of God. Uh, we're not human yet, or we're not even individual yet, right. but it's that place where we can begin to conceive of individuality and uh, for the first time. And so we leave and we enter into that field, and that, I think, is the field of, of consciousness. We become conscious. Um, for the first time, we can begin to get an inkling of the source as unity, but we can picture it from the outside, which means we have just begun to experience a little bit of individuality. We now have us and them, me and you for mm -hmm. the first time. But that's not far enough to really experience individuality. So we have to go through the first field. And that's what I wrote about in my book, The Quantum Akashic Field. I think this is the Akashic field. The word Akasha comes from the ancient Sanskrit, um, and uh, it, it, it's a very difficult thing to describe, but it's in that conscious, in that Akashic field where we can begin now to experience for the first time the idea of an identity. Right. But we enter through that Akashic field, that consciousness, where consciousness can begin to conceive of all these, and we enter into the second area, which I like to call quantum reality or thoughts and intention mm -hmm. and intuitions where we're still not human yet we're not material yet of course we're still just energy but we are involved in that quantum field that uh, that we can i think sometimes visit when we have out-of-body experiences right. uh, thoughts intuitions everything is possible all probabilities exist there but we still don't uh, we are still not material we still haven't taken on mass to do that we have to go through another field, which is that newly discovered Higgs field. Mm -hmm. That's the place where energy takes on mass. Uh, Einstein recognized the mathematics for E equals MC squared. Energy is mass times the speed of light squared. If you ask a scientist what the Higgs field is, they can describe what it does, but they really can't describe <laughs> it very well. They start giggling after a while. Well, in England, uh, Cornwall, my friends over there refer to it as, uh, well, it's kind of like treacle and i i don't know i said what's treacle well over here we use the word molasses <laughs> in effect <laughs> energy slows down enough to take on mass but when we go through that higgs field and energy that began way back at the source and went through the consciousness or the mind of god through the akashic field of possibility and probability into the newly discovered quantum reality that scientists have discovered with their mathematics right. even though I think mystics have been talking about it for thousands of years. They've right. been playing in that field. <laughs> Through the Higgs field, we take on mass and we come now here to this place on the edge of the pie where we live. Material reality manifested. I, I like to call it our perception realm because mm -hmm. we can perceive things through there. 
And that's what we're doing right now. And the purpose of us being out here, I think, is to gather experience. Now, the Buddha was the first to understand that experience can't just be good. That's what we want. We just want good experience. Yeah. We don't want the bad. You know, we want to go back in our right. lives and relive all the good stuff. We don't want to relive the bad stuff. But we can't do that because experience is a duality. It comes with good and bad and up and down. Mm -hmm. So even all the bad things we've done, um, I used to feel ashamed of them. And uh, being a Christian, I would confess my sins. You know, right. I used to be ashamed of all of them. And now, you know, what I want to do with them again? No. Were they right? No. But they were part of my experience. It's what I, it's what I came out here to experience. Uh, good or bad, they made me who I am. And these days, when I tend to get really depressed when I look at the news and turn on the television and hear all the bad stuff, and you can't have a single uh, news program about COVID without somebody crying because that that sells, you know. We want to emphasize the bad and all this kind of stuff. And out here, we get we get that so much. And I really have tended to believe that because I have that idea in my mind of the source and why I'm out here to experience all this stuff, it somehow helps me a little bit to know that whatever's happening, good or bad, it's happening for a reason. Mm -hmm. And I will take that back to the source. And as a result, I will build up the source. The source will build up, which is a fascinating theological thing, because if one of the terms we use to describe the source is God, yeah. we are in effect growing God. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's what Jesus meant, for instance, when he said, what? Know ye not that ye all are gods? You know, we, mm -hmm. we all are. We're a piece of that source. Come out here to experience this. It, it also has, has taken away a lot of the guilt that you mentioned earlier when you talked about heaven and hell. We're raised in that idea of heaven and hell, you know, and hell is a place of eternal torment and all that kind of stuff. I, it, we're raised with it so much that it's very difficult to shake it. But this concept has really helped me believe that, um, yeah, in a sense, hell is real and we're in it right now. <laughs> if hell is separation from God, yeah. here we are, separated from God. And it wasn't that we were kicked out. It was that we made a courageous decision to come and experience not only the good, but the bad. And we're living it now. Mm -hmm. And that gives me hope. It gives me hope that uh, there's a reason for our existence, reason for our life, a reason for a pandemic. There's a reason. And that's to experience all of the reality of what can be. Do you think that, that when we're in one of the other fields before we're born, that we choose who we're going to be in the life that we're going to live beforehand and what experiences we want to try to have. Well, of course, you know, we, we can't know, but I, I, I would sure be open to it. Uh, I, I would tend to almost kind of believe that um, I've almost come to the conclusion now. I mean, I'm, I'm fairly certain that we don't just experience it once we experience yeah. it over and over again. Yeah, me too. The whole idea of reincarnation, every lifetime we come back with a different purpose. Um, until we have fulfilled all those purposes. Now, whether that, you know, we talked about consciousness being wild. Now we get into the feeling of time. Time is just as crazy. Whether those <laughs> lifetimes happen in the course of, uh, you know, time, linear time, or whether they all happen at once and we're experiencing them all at once with the perception of them being in different ages, I, I, I don't know. But yeah, yeah, I'm open to that. I really am. Wow. Um it's interesting. I, I interviewed somebody yesterday about time, actually. He's in, uh, 
Israel, and he has some really good insights into mm. to it. But one of the things that we, you know, we were laughing about is that we don't know what time is. Um, we don't know what matter is. <laughs> we don't know what anything is. We're just all we know is we're having this crazy experience. Yeah, you know? isn't it crazy? We don't we don't know what time is, but it controls us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we, we don't know what what uh, material reality is like. We know it's an illusion, and yet it's such a powerful illusion we can't kick it. Those are the facts right before us. We don't know any of that stuff, and yet we think that we're right on top of it all. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, it, it's almost like we, we we almost trick ourselves into believing. Yeah, you know that like like this is it. You know, and it's all there is. Um, and I, really I wonder, I wonder too, though, you know, because I've had experiences with very young children who have not been uh, brainwashed like mm -hmm. all of us are as we grow up. And they talk about their imaginary friends. And, you know, they talk about um, uh, when I was when I remember when I was big and grandma was small, you know, or that kind of thing. Uh, and I found myself saying, well, what are they talking about? Well, I begin to wonder if the experience of life is so new with these very young children that they haven't had a chance to be brainwashed away from it yet. And maybe they're experiencing or remembering something that is is really true. I wonder sometimes if they have a, a better idea than we do. Um, I had an experience uh, that's going to sound like a crazy, you know, wild thing. And I, if, if some of your listeners don't believe it, I don't blame them. I wouldn't have believed it either 20 years ago. But I had an experience of, um, in, in an out-of-body experience, of going through, going to um, an actual home. Uh, it was in St. Louis, as a matter mm -hmm. of fact. And there was a young child who recognized me. And there were other adults in the room. And this young child recognized me. And responded to me now the adults didn't see me but the child did and we were actually able to communicate and i visited this child over the next year probably two or three times and then one time i couldn't get through and i thought it was something i was doing but now i begin to wonder if maybe that child was talking about his imaginary friend and he was finally taught oh there's no such thing as imaginary yeah. friends and uh it was actually me in an out-of-body experience it was it was quite an eye-opener, just for the fun of it, uh, even though I'm averse to a lot of modern technology. Uh, I googled the place where I was, and uh, I actually found the street, and I actually found the house uh, hmm. you know, by, with a flyover, and it was exactly as I remember it. Um, I'm hoping that maybe someday this child will grow old enough to have out of body experiences and remember his imaginary friend who was who was me. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. That's that's amazing. I, I too agree. Like I think children and maybe even animals and, and plants and, and maybe probably even rocks and everything yeah, yeah, yeah. has some type of consciousness. I mean I I have no doubt they have consciousness, but they might be able to sense what we cannot sense or yeah. you know because yeah. we're, we're, we're we've, we've we've been programmed to to only believe our five senses yeah 
um, where like animals, plants, and children have not been programmed the same way we have. Yeah, yeah, and and it's interesting. Uh, We we even find uh, evidence of this in the Bible. Um, Jesus was coming into uh, the into the holy city in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Whether you look at it as history or metaphor, it doesn't Mm -hmm. make any difference. He was coming in, and the crowd was in effect welcoming in the spirit and in metaphor it was kind of like the source revealing itself to us and we are welcoming it and um, the people were gathered along shouting and singing and all this kind of stuff hosanna and the uh, uh, people and the the authorities who didn't like the riot that was developing said uh, to jesus tell your disciples to stop all this noise And, and jesus said i tell you if they did not sing the very stones would cry out. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think the stones themselves would have the consciousness. And a lot of times I come across an old rock or an old stone or an old boulder, put my hands on it and say, oh, I wish I, if you have so many stories to tell, I wish I could understand them. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. I think that way too. Like like I've used to, uh, I haven't lately, but I used to always go for like walks out in the woods and finally, like if I came across like a tree that's like a really, really old, you know, yeah. and big, I'm like, I can't, I can't imagine what that tree has, has experienced over a hundred, two hundred, three hundred years yeah. Of, yeah. of being in that spot. How many people have walked by? It, how many animals have been on it? You know, yeah. all, all everything that it's experienced. You know, most of the time we just look at a tree, just like, oh, it's just a an inanimate yeah. object. You, you and I are exactly the same in that. When I was uh, last in Israel, uh, I went down to the place where it's considered to be the Mount of Olives. And I know those olive trees will live for thousands of years. And there were some old, old olive trees right outside the, the gate that is now gated up in outside of Jerusalem. And I stood down underneath this one old tree, and I was told by the person who was watching there that this this tree was alive 2,000 years ago when Jesus came into the city. And I just can't think of a tree being that old. What stories they could tell. I agree with you 100%. Uh, maybe someday we'll be able to understand and interpret it. Yeah. And I, I, I think, too, like, 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 like Druids, for example, you know, yeah. that, that's sort of like the, almost like the foundation of, of what they believed was, was almost like getting wisdom from 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 yeah. the trees and, and, and rocks and, and stuff like that. They would somehow tele- using telepathy or, or whatever communicate and be able to access some of the wisdom that you know they have. Yeah, there was a, a huge oak grove where I used to go back when I used when I hunt, hunted a lot. I used to go back there and hunt because uh, there were a lot of squirrels back there. And back then I was living off the land, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But I, it, it was this immense grove of big oak trees that were perhaps 30 feet apart from each other. Over canopy was, you never really saw the sun because the canopy was so dark. <laughs> Every time I took somebody back into that grove and showed them, they would always say the same thing. Feels like a cathedral in mm-hmm. here. They would say. It felt like a holy place. Uh, I think the druids were <laughs> were were right in uh, right on the money for that. You know that, that they they didn't build uh, places to worship inside. They were built, you know, they worshipped outside in nature. And I think that recognition is passed down from generation to generation. 
there's a place in France right now where you can go that it was the central place where the Druids would gather. It was the center of their religion till Julius Caesar chopped it all down. Mm -hmm. But the sense of holiness was held on because that became a small church and it is now the place where Chartres Cathedral is built. So Chartres Cathedral, that great cathedral to Christian theology is mm -hmm. built on the very same place where the Druids used to be. Uh, that sense of holiness is, it just has stayed through the generations. A wonderful, wonderful thing. Yeah, that, that, that was something that was, was common, I believe, like when them sort of like taking down some of the more pagan sites and putting their churches on top of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, very good. Like, and, and, and sometimes taking the pagan rituals like Yule logs and Christmas mm -hmm. trees, bringing them into the house and Easter eggs and <laughs> rabbits and all that kind of stuff. You know, all, those are all pagan symbols. When when somebody says Merry Christmas today, what they're really talking about mostly is the Christian symbols. I mean, Santa used to be a shaman, you know, right. <laughs> it was same kind of thing. It's a it's a very pagan holiday that has just been Christianized so much that we don't realize it anymore. But the old pagan religion isn't dead; it's still with us. Yeah, yeah, it's just uh, changed. <laughs> sort of, it, 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 it had to adapt almost to survive the the incoming new religion. So they sort of just adapted into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been absorbed, baptized. I like to say, you know, <laughs> uh, but it's the it's the age old thing. You know, and, and that's, I just had a recent re revelation about that. Uh, being a, a Christian minister for so long and then seeing, well, dare I say it, I don't want to offend anybody, but dare I say the, degrega the degradation of a large section of the, Christ the Christian religion that mm -hmm. I used to be involved with that has now gone so, you know, completely off the rails, I think, in some ways. That for a long time, uh, I was, I was almost ashamed to use the word Christian, but then I began to understand that it wasn't my problem because when I talk about Christianity, I'm not talking about the religion uh, that has grown up. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the essence at the beginning that was shared by not only the uh, the the Christ, Messiah, or, right. or Jesus, rather, but also by Moses and Abraham and uh, by Buddha and by Muhammad and all a lot of these early people, these great world religions that have somehow gone so off the rails. They were, if you go back to their founder, you discover an actual and a real uh, experience that that founder had with the other side. Sometimes it was an out-of-body experience. Yes. Um, sometimes it was a near-death experience. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes it was just a revelation. But you go back to the time of Jesus, for instance, um, taking Peter and James and John up on top of a mountain. And while they're up on the mountain, out of the ether, out from the other side, steps Moses and Elijah. Um two people who died suspicious deaths back in the Old Testament. <laughs> and they they are transfigured. And uh, Peter says that one of the dumbest things he ever said, he says, oh, let's make a house for you. Like the last thing Peter, James, and John needed was a house, you mm -hmm. know, a little tent. And so they're up there and here they are, they're looking and they're actually seeing entities from the other side, those same kind of entities that the people who I was with in the hospital room when they died and they said, I saw loved ones or I saw right. those entities. They were looking at them. They were right there. They had stepped out of another dimension. Now that's a, 
that was a powerful reality. Um, I try to take that kind of reality and put it together with much that I see now in terms of modern religion. And oh, we've we've fallen a, a great deal, but I'm no longer going to be ashamed of Christianity as long as I understand that when I say Christianity, I'm talking about something that's very ancient and very real. Right. No more unique than Hinduism, no more mm -hmm. unique than Buddhism. Uh, but my way of understanding, my yeah. software that hits me, that ties me up with the hardware. Uh -huh. just, yeah. It's what I'm most familiar with, that's all. Yeah, all, all of these old religions were based on um, somebody having an out-of-body of experience and coming back and trying to communicate it to people to help them. You yeah. know, I don't think they were really originally intended to to focus on the person who was giving the message. Yeah. We, yeah. We, we, we focus too much on the person who was giving the message rather than the message. Yeah. Uh, like in Buddhism, there's a saying like, uh, don't mistake the finger for the moon. Yes, that's right. When you're pointing to the moon, don't mm -hmm. mistake the finger for the moon. You know, I, I, I had this opportunity uh, at Christmas time. Uh, I like to send out a Christmas message to, to friends. And uh, this year, uh, I, I wanted to incorporate a song that I wrote first, oh, 30 years ago, um, back when I was a, a fundamentalist Christian. And uh, yeah, I talked about Jesus, but it was called Thank You for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And I recorded it back in the 90s. And then I recorded it again, I think about 14, 15 years ago with another uh, a church group, a contemporary church group. So the song was kind of like um, <laughs> born again in a new generation. And this year, my daughter, Jan, who handles all the technical stuff for me and all the, the uh, nuts and bolts of what I do, she put it together uh, with a video as a, uh, a song about hope, uh, recognizing the medical people and the first, uh, the first responders and the people on the front lines of the pandemic. She put it together with a, a powerful pictures. The song has three verses, and it's about faith, uh, or hope rather, and then the loss of hope, the loss of faith, mm -hmm. and then renewing it uh, in, a, in a brand new way. And she put together this powerful message and it showed nurses and it showed doctors and it showed first responders and it showed people triumphing over this pandemic. And I thought it was a tremendous, powerful message, even though I had first written the song 30 years mm -hmm. ago, she had given a whole new slant and uh, played it for a couple of people and their thing as well, it's too Jesus-y for me. You know, completely <laughs> lost the idea. It's on my, I'll tell you what, it's on my uh, my YouTube page. Uh, go to YouTube and then put in Jim Willis and uh, thank you for Christmas. I'll check and it out. Can find it. And I would be really glad to have them watch that and tell me if it's too Jesus. -y. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it was just about this last year. It was about hope and then losing hope and then finding it again now right. at the end coming out the other end. I thought it was a powerful message, mm -hmm. but uh, I'd be curious to see what your listeners think. And yeah. if, you what, if any of you listeners want to listen to that song, go to YouTube, Jim Willis, thank you for Christmas. And tell me what you think by going to my webpage, which is www.jimwillis.net. And you'll find a contact page and you can send me an email through that contact page 
let me know if it's too Jesus-y. <laughs> I'll post the links to those in the notes of the episode. So, oh, that's great. So that way great. they can check that out. I'll definitely be checking it out, too. I, I have a feeling it's not going to be too Jesus-y, though. <laughs> <laughs> I can say I guessed that without even well, I watching just, it. I just use the word metaphor. Keep thinking mm-hmm. metaphor and you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's interesting. Like, uh, you know, when it comes to religion, I, you know, I mean, I did go through a phase when I, was, when I was younger. I was rebellious against it. I wanted nothing to do with it. I said, "Oh, they're just a bunch of uh, hypocrites." That was the the, the, the term I, I used. Sure. And um, and now I, I just kind of look at them all, and I'm like, all these people, the, the, their experiences are valid, and, and you know. And, and, and the teachings are, are valid too of, of all these great mystics of like Buddha and Jesus and, and yeah, yeah. Muhammad and, and, and um, Krishna, like all of them. You know, even even living ones like the Dalai Lama, and sure, Mother sure. Teresa, like all, all these people, Gandhi, they were all teachers, and. In in most cases, too, what they were teaching is really the same thing. Uh, I think they were all trying to express the same thing. And I think the God or the universe or the source wants us to know something. It's, it's trying to tell us something. And for some reason, trying to get us to listen seems to be a really difficult task. Yeah, yeah. I like to say you have to look through the sensors. Um I just I just wrote a book that uh, uh, it it's not up on it's not done yet it's still in the final stages of editing although it's called censoring God and it is on Amazon for uh, you know pre-release and all that kind of stuff so uh, it is available for pre-order but in censoring God I wanted to talk about a really a lifetime of Bible study for me and going back and studying the Bible and understanding what it really is, we get the idea that the Bible, whether it's the Jewish Old Testament, uh, or what the Christians call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, or the New Testament, um, it doesn't come to us directly. It comes through a committee. So when we go back and we try to read what these early uh, people wrote, we're really not reading the originals uh, all of the originals at all. We're reading mm-hmm. a censored version of it. Uh, and these committees sometimes would meet and they would have um, uh, political reasons for keeping some books out and some books in. So I think when, when we do, as, as you talk about the, the hypocritical part of it is absolutely true, I think. But when we go back and read these stories, we have to read them with the idea of we're reading, we're reading these stories and they come to us filtered. So we have to like go through the filter and try mm-hmm. to catch the essence of the reality that was there. And I think when we get through that filter, um, there is, as you as you say, they're they're all the same thing. There is another uh, video I have up on my YouTube channel. Uh, it, it's about it's the subtitle is "One Ring to Rule Them All," and it's the idea of going into each of the five great world religions and finding the core value the core essence and in each case whether it's judaism christianity islam hinduism buddhism we go back and we find that the founder was in essence a shaman 
who had a spiritual experience, sometimes, as you say, out of body, mm -hmm. um, sometimes just a heavy spiritual experience. And, and you would find that the essence and the story is always the same. Uh, Moses at the burning bush, uh, who shall I say sent me? And the burning bush says, I am that I am. Uh, Jesus out in the desert wrestling with the devil, uh, Buddha under the bow tree mm -hmm. wrestling with Mara, the Buddhist equivalent of the devil, the, the ancient Hindus who, who um, talked about the, the Anunnaki gods, the Anuna gods mm -hmm. and all the rest of them. And the essence is all the same. And the problem comes that the essence gets covered up by a political structure that we now call a religion. And with every generation, it builds more rules and gets farther and farther away. Until now, quite frankly, we look at some of these religions that are in effect today, and they have nothing to do with the original founder. <laughs> and I, I don't know how people can stay with it. I don't know how they can. Yeah. I, still, my, I still call myself a Christian because that's the comfortable set uh -huh. of metaphors that I like. But I haven't been in a Christian church for 11 years now. I haven't set foot in a church. So you just have to break through, I think, somehow. Mm -hmm. Break through the filters and see the essence. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, I, I, I kind of consider myself a, a Buddhist, but at the same time, I, I just don't, I, you know, I'm open to everything. I want, I want to just want, my, my thing is I want to know what yeah. the, 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 the truth is, the, you know, what, what is it I'm supposed to be doing? And, you know, living in Alabama is, is strange because I had a job for a while where I, my job was driving these guys to church. Wow. And so I would have to sit through some of these church services. And I grew up Catholic, you know, and I went to Catholic church. And it was a real, real structure to the Catholic church and how they do their sermons. Yeah. And, and it's very linear. And then I went to some of these churches here, and I would sit through an, an hour-long service and not hear one single teaching of Jesus. And I'm like... <laughs> what's the point I, I don't get it yeah yeah uh, it's it's amazing uh and yet that's well that's what we've become we've carried this individualism uh, i think to a, an unhealthy degree we are maybe it's time to start stop understanding that we are all individuals out here Maybe it's time to start thinking that we are individuals, but the, the point is going to be to uh, obtain that kind of source unity out here on the edge where we are. Mm -hmm. In essence, we are one. Uh, and even physics tells us that, you know, we're, we're one with all things. There's no, not that much difference in our DNA and the DNA of a chipmunk, I mean, a, a, a monkey, you know. So we have to, at some point, I, I sometimes wonder if the human race is standing in a crossroads right now, uh, we have a long and rich spiritual tradition that goes back thousands of years. If you want to go back to the beginning of our civilization, you can go back to Gobekli Tepe. Mm -hmm. And what's the first thing we find there? A, a temple. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and that's a religious tradition that goes back a long way, a spiritual tradition that goes back a long ways. And yet, uh, scientists have now begun to understand through their um, uh, complicated math, it's very sophisticated math, they begin to understand this quantum reality, to, reality that's on the other side of the Higgs field. So here we are, 
the human race standing at a crossroads with a, a thousands of year old tr spiritual tradition that is beginning to look a lot like a hundred year old uh, mathematical idea of quantum reality and we're merging. And I think the question right now is, does our spirit, has our spiritual tradition brought us to the point of maturity and ethicalness, ethicalness, is that a word? <laughs> and morality, <laughs> uh, ethics, there we go, and morality that is sufficient to handle the kind of technology we have. Um, can we handle some of these dangerous toys that we're playing with, nuclear energy and, mm -hmm. and the rest? Can we handle those things? Just because we can do something, does that mean we should do it? So, yeah, we are, uh, in, in one sense, we have a rich spiritual tradition that should have brought us to the point where we have the ethics and the morality to handle this kind of power, but it hasn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I really worry because it, you know, we, we wonder about a lost civilization that existed before Gobekli Tepe right. 13,000 years ago. And we say, what happened to it? I wonder if 10, 12,000 years from now, people are going to be looking back and they're going to be remembering this lost generation that could go to the moon and talk to each other on the other side of the planet and fly and, um, are we going to become another lost civilization that came to the point where we we did not have the spirituality to, spirituality to handle our material uh -huh. technology? I don't I don't know I don't know we'll find out I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I I have a friend. In fact, I just released an episode of his today named Jared Murphy, and he wrote a book called "It's Not Aliens Worse, It's Us," and and it's all based on the premise that. Um, it was an ancient civilization goes civilization goes way back further than what science says to us. They became advanced. Um, there was, and there was this advanced society living among a primitive society mm -hmm. and the, the advanced society got so advanced too quickly that they wiped themselves out like land, you know, in Atlantis and, um, and, uh, and, and some of the survivors of it decided it's like, okay, we're not going to let this happen so quickly again. And basically somehow genetically put themselves into like what he would call like a safe mode mm -hmm. until they were ready. You know, this kind of like go through, going through emotions, keeping the species of going. And then once they're evolved enough emotionally and spiritually, then they'll turn that reactivate that part of the DNA that kind of wakes up like the third eye or whatever sure. and allows them to become advanced again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not. I'm not gonna. Uh, there was a time in my life when I would have said, "Oh, you know, come on, that's just science fiction." But <laughs> I don't. I don't think that way anymore. I really don't. I find it fascinating that as soon as we reached a certain point of technical proficiency, where we could leave this Earth and we could send out Voyager, what did we do? We sent it out. And Carl Sagan got together with a group of people and they came up with the famous golden record mm -hmm. that had all the earth sounds and this is who we are and languages and earth and, uh, and, and, and even instructions on how to play the record and everything else. And they put it into Voyager and they sent the spaceship up there, the rocket ship, and just said, go. And basically what they were doing was announcing to the universe, here we are. The first chance we had to leave Earth, even though we couldn't do it in the body, 
we could do it technologically. Our first response was to say, is there anybody out there? This is who we are. I wonder if this happened now, and we're talking about a planet that's five and a half billion years old. Did it happen before? Uh, did we ever have come to that kind of technology? And when we're talking about aliens coming here to planet Earth in nuts and bolts spaceships and things like that, you know, could it be possible that those aliens are indeed, they want to come back home and find out what happened? They mm -hmm. came from here. They went out there. They evolved yeah. among the stars. They came back to this planet. And now they want to find out what we have become. Um, now, we would call such things gods, you know. Yeah. But it's, it's remembered in Jesus. You know, Jesus left and he's supposed to, the second coming, he's supposed to come back. We're always saying the aliens are going to come back. And uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, once met with Gorbachev and in a private meeting. Both of them remembered the meeting well, where Reagan said, uh, if somebody from outer space uh, came and contacted us, would you be with us? And Gorbachev said, yeah, we'd be with you. Would you be with us? And Reagan said, yeah, we would be. Um, it, it, we almost tend to think, uh, if we're going to save ourselves, it's going to have to be a savior from outside. Wouldn't it be something if the whole Jesus story of the second coming is a metaphor that talked about going up into space, evolving, living in mm -hmm. heaven, so to speak, coming back before we can destroy ourselves and bringing peace to the earth. Um, I find a great hope in that somehow. Whether it's just science fiction, I don't know, but it, it certainly is a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it doesn't matter whether it's science fiction or not, really, you know. Um, and, and I also, this is where I, I think some of these ideas really connect with some of your work is for us to be able to evolve to a point where we're able to manage our technology. Yeah. First, we need to learn how to manage ourselves. And in order to do that, it is part of what you do, I, I believe anyway, is with these out-of-body experiences to really know, or, or like maybe we can't know or understand, but we're able to experience at least and access certain things um, or certain parts of truth through those experiences and once we have those experiences, maybe we could become a little bit more responsible with some of the technology that we have in the physical world. I, I agree 100%. I think you're absolutely right. And, and again, in, in the great religious traditions, we find examples of this. We find um, Isaiah, for instance, uh, telling the story in, in the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. In the first book of Isaiah, uh, the first in, in the in Isaiah, I think it's chapter six, um, where he is has an out-of-body experience and he's taken to heaven. And there he is taken into what he calls the throne room of God. Now, remember, he's trying to describe things right. that are outside of our experience. And he's trying to do it with a vocabulary of someone who lived 2,500 years ago, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but he says he's into the throne room of God. And he said he hears things and he sees things and he sees these mythical, so, so to speak, entities with a, a, a four different faces, the faces of an animal or the faces of a, a lion right. or 
a human and they have wings and they're able to fly and he sees the 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 throne room of heaven and the word of god coming forth and uh god says who shall i send who shall i send back and isaiah says here i am send me and he is changed as a result of this mm -hmm. he becomes what the booty what what the, the the buddha would call a bodhisattva uh, he is enlightened but he lives here in human form and isaiah came back and he wrote the book of isaiah uh, um, ezekiel sees yeah, this ufo come down to heaven with wheels within wheels and again uh, hybrid creatures part animal part human and uh, the apostle paul second corinthians 12 had an OBE. He said, I was taken up to the third heaven and I was taught things that I am not forbidden, that I am forbidden to, to, to speak about. Well, I don't think he was forbidden. I just think he saw things that were so profound that human language isn't sophisticated enough to be able to mm -hmm. explain it. It's when we come back and try to explain these things. Um, Gabriel, the angel from the Old Testament, appeared to Daniel, he appeared to Mary, appeared to Mohammed to three great religions same angel same name an entity steps out of another dimension i i think it's just over and over again the the same thing that uh, we have to listen to this we have to grow we have to mature as you say otherwise we're, we're just uh headed down de a, a dead-end street we really are yeah um do, do you have any techniques or recommendations for people to have their own OBEs and, and, wow. and to expand their, their awareness? Because I think that's where, where the only way that humans are really going to start yeah. understanding these things is not by reading them in a book or hearing somebody else tell the story over and over again. Yeah, yeah. It, it has to be experienced or at least experimented with. Yeah, yeah. Robert Monroe used to talk about making our um, our uh, ideas, uh, our thoughts into what he called knowns, our beliefs into knowns. In other mm -hmm. words, not to believe it, you have to know it. Just what you just said, experience it. Um, yeah, I I can share the 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 technique that I use. There's a lot of different ones. Um, I, for instance, have never had uh, uh, the experience of using psychedelics or ayahuasca or mushrooms or anything like that, or even LSD, some of the synthetic things, although some friends of mine have, and they say that sometimes that's been helpful. Uh, right. I can't recommend it because I've never done it, so I don't know anything about it. Um, a lot of shamans use the idea of drumming, that monotonous drumming that just goes on and on. And, there's something to it and most people realize it uh, remember the old rock and roll song give me the beat boys and <laughs> be my soul i want to get lost in your rock and roll and yeah. drift away there is something about the that that the drumming that does it uh the technique that i use is a um a kind of a, 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 a amalgamate amalgamation it's a mixture of modern technology and ancient technology. The ancient technology is the Hindu concept of meditation and the mm -hmm. Buddhist concept of meditation. And the modern technology part comes that I use a, a technology that was developed by Robert Monroe at the Monroe Institute called HemiSync. Um, HemiSync is, is, was a, a, 
I think a fantastic invention that Robert Monroe stumbled over that helped to get the two hemispheres of our brains in sync. Now that's a really too simplified version, but Mm -hmm. there's all kinds of hemisync, uh, hemisphere synchronization music out there on the, on the, on the internet right now. I find myself going back and back, back and over and over again to the same one, uh, sleeping in the rain, a very famous Mm -hmm. thing was developed, but I have probably six or eight different uh, hemisync music things. So I, put them on with my uh, with, with headphones and I have to find a time of the day when, and, and this is extremely important. I can't emphasize this enough to people who want to try it. You have to find a time of day that is uh, conducive. And what I mean by that is if you just say, I'm going to meditate first thing in the morning. And if you're the kind of like me, you wake up first thing in the morning and your mind's going a mile a minute with mm-hmm. all things you got to do today. It's really hard to bring the mind down. On the other hand, if you wait until late thing at night, when your body is getting a little bit tired and you start to meditate, you can easily fall asleep. So what you have to do is find a time of day that's conducive for you and your schedule to meditate with uh this hemisync music now for me i <laughs> i hate to say this because I, I don't mean to imply that this is what everybody's <laughs> got to do but for me the only time of the day when that worked was three o'clock in the morning <laughs> I, I found myself waking up at three o'clock in the morning for some reason i didn't know why but at that point i was rested enough i'd had enough sleep where i wouldn't fall back to sleep but I was still restful enough where I wouldn't be filled with what I have to do for the rest of the day. Right. And I would get up out of bed and I would go to a particular place, a particular chair, and I would meditate, put on my hemi-sync three o'clock in the morning and I would listen. And it used to be that I couldn't meditate for more than 15, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. That was a long time for me. Now it takes more than that just to get my mind calmed down. So now usually I'm meditating for an hour, sometimes an hour and a half. However, I do have to warn people that if you're going to do it, just doing it once and trying it is better than nothing, but it's probably not sufficient. You have to do it over and over again. Bill Buhlman, uh, who I studied with at the Monroe Institute, used to teach us 30 days, 30 minutes a day, no exceptions. Make it the most important thing in your life. Mm-hmm. Plan your schedule around it. Don't try to fit it in. Because if you just try to fit it in, it means everything else is more important than this is. Plan your schedule around this time. 30 days, 30 minutes a day. And I'm here to tell you, if I had quit at day 28, I would be having this conversation with you right now. It took me that long. That, however, is... Um, I'm speaking out of my experience and I'd love to be able to tell you that now I could just go meditate and have an out-of-body experience. (laughs) Unfortunately, it's gotten harder and harder the longer this pandemic has gone. Like everybody else, I've been addicted to uh, hearing the news, seeing what's going Mm -hmm. on, the election going on, all the rest of the stuff that's been going on. And I hear all this stuff. And uh, I, as we talked last time I talked with you last summer, you know, my wife and I live out here in the woods in the middle of nowhere. You'd think this would be the perfect place. We came out here deliberately to be able to get away from the world. But all of this stuff going on in the world right now, I find myself caught up in it. And I'm finding it harder and harder to achieve that one point 
meditation that is is so important mm -hmm. uh, i have to really work on it socrates once said beware the barrenness of a busy life and i think he was absolutely right uh, our lives are so busy today and on the other hand they're filled with so much technological information but very little uh, what spirituality they are the, the the barrenness that socrates talked about right. noise and speed so I would recommend that people try this. Find that time of the day. Um, you know, get yourself some hemisync music. Mm -hmm. uh, really work at it. 30 minutes a day at least for 30 days. I guarantee if you can do that, something will happen. Yeah. You'll have an out-of-body experience. Now, when it happens, probably the first thing you're going to do after trying so hard you have to get kind of Zen Buddhist here. Mm -hmm. You have to try really hard. How do you how do you try really hard? By not trying. <laughs> there, there's the, the koan for you. But it's it's really true that if you do these things and if you finally have that out-of-body experience you've been working for, and all of a sudden you realize something has shifted. All of a sudden you've realized you've reached that one-point meditation. All of a sudden you feel a shift with me it always came by it felt like my body was full of water and it all sloshed over to one side and mm -hmm. as soon as that happened i knew something was going on and the first time you step out and the first time you are experiencing a reality on the other side of your perception fence your first thought is going to be i made it <laughs> and you're going to be snapped right back into right. your body again don't feel bad. It happens to everybody. It happened to me. It'll happen to everybody. But the fact that you made it just for that instant um, will give you confidence next time. And uh, the other thing is when you have an experience that works, so to speak, your tendency is going to be try to repeat it and do it, do it again uh, in the same way. Well, it doesn't work that way. You just you have to find that sense of peace and openness. You have to be thinking about literally nothing you have to quiet your thoughts down because it's the brain that wants to keep us in mm -hmm. i had uh an out-of-body experience one time that was uh one of the only somewhat terrifying experiences i ever had i had uh started to have this dream and in this dream um i had just acquired some uh, property that was next to my own that I was going to add on to my own acreage. And I had a guide who was going to show me where the line was. Uh, but the guide was gone. I had to go out and find it on my own. And I found myself drifting farther and farther away into a reality that was noisy and confusing and everything else. And I managed to stay in the meditation. In, and then I realized I wasn't dreaming anymore. I was now aware of the fact was it a lucid dream? Was I having an out-of-body experience? I, I don't know. It depends on definition, I suppose. I think it was an out-of-body experience. But there, in the midst of it, I met this old woman who met me. Uh, I write about this in uh, uh, Quantum Akashic Field because it was one of the really important experiences I've ever had. She met me and she was going to uh, guide me, so to speak, into this wilderness. And we went down and down and down into this place that looked like mm -hmm. a safe and the door closed behind me and there was another door and another and another below ground and I was getting a little bit claustrophobic and so I said to the woman uh, 
what is this place? And she said to me, this is where I have to live when you die. And as soon as she said that, and there was more to it, but as soon as she said that, I was back in my body again. And I realized that in dream or in out-of-body experience, I had had the experience of meeting my ego, the one that lives here in the mm -hmm. brain, the thinker. And I realized that in, in Christian terms, sometimes they used to talk about demon possession. Right. And I realized that in a sense, we're, we're all demon possessed, but the demon is our individuality, our uh -huh. ego, the part that thinks about us. Now, when we leave this body and in, in death, this body dies and the ego dies too. And I think somehow this ego, this individualness, mm -hmm. um, is somehow aware and panicked and that when we die its life is over we live forever uh -huh. but the ego the body that's going to die and it was the wildest experience of going outside of myself in this dream and then coming back and meeting the ego and who, who actually told me when you die this is where we have to live it's the grave uh-huh it was it was a pretty powerful experience. Uh, I haven't, you know, assimilated it all yet. I'm sure, but yeah. uh, you know, it's it's it, it was it was such a powerful experience, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure I've ever really got over it, and not sure I ever will. Yeah, I can understand that because, like, just just listening to to the story and you tell it um, makes me feel a little bit of almost like compassion. From my own ego, yeah. And I was like, oh yeah. well, you know, like like granted, I I don't like being attached to my ego, and it's a real pain in the ass, and it gets me in trouble. Yeah. But at the same time, to to, to know that it's going to be you know locked away in in some vault after I die for eternities, like well, yeah, you know, yeah. What can I, I do about this situation? Yeah, I, I don't think the ego will be conscious anymore. I'm not implying at all that mm -hmm. the ego is going to be aware. Um, I, I think that that in its sense was a, was a metaphor. But, but yeah. I wonder if there's some type of merging that should happen. Well, I, I, I think probably the best way to approach it is realize when we take on an ego, it's because we are involved in a mission. We are on a mission to come out here to the edge from the mm -hmm. source and experience. And when we die, that mission is over. So in a sense, we could say the hero, the ego dies a hero. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it has experienced all this. And were it not for that ego, we wouldn't be able to bring the experience back with us. Right. Into the soul. So uh, in, in that sense, we can have, I, I think, a, a, a very gentle uh, approach toward it, that the ego's time is limited, but that was part of the process. That's mm -hmm. part of the plan. Um, I found that it helps me in thinking in these terms. I found that it helps me in one of the, the greatest Christian uh, teachings is forgiveness. Forgive your neighbor. Um, I have always had a hard time with that. I have trouble forgiving people who hurt me. Mm -hmm. I have trouble thinking, how can you forgive an Adolf Hitler? Um, how can you forgive somebody who just seems evil like that? And then I look at them 
And I realized what a courageous decision they had to make to take on that kind of persona. Uh, and it makes me feel a little sorry for them, not for what they did. Right. I certainly don't forgive them for what they did, but it makes me feel sorry for them knowing the karma that they sowed during that evil life is going to have to be uh, expunged over lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. It makes me kind of feel sorry for your enemy. And if you can feel sorry for your enemy, maybe that's the first step toward forgiving. Yeah. So. You know, um, I had heard like an alternate story of, of Jesus in his crucifixion. And, and, and the story, and I don't know if there's any truth to it at all. I find this is something that somebody made up and posted on the internet. But but the idea behind it was that, that Judas was Jesus's twin brother. And, um, you know, Judas betrayed Jesus and he felt, felt bad about it. Uh, he felt so bad about it that he, he, he took Jesus's place on the cross and then Jesus was able to es escape the crucifixion. Yeah. Yeah. And, then, and, and according to that same story, he went to India. Yeah. And, and, and there's a place in India that still celebrates that particular place where Jesus went to live. Yeah. And, um, but, but to me, that, that that story is just as powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Forgive. It's just powerful to me because because the key, you know, is that forgiveness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, there's a, a uh, another version of that same story that's told in the Hebrew Old Testament. It's that um, Judas, or not not Judas, rather, but. Um, uh, the the devil Lucifer mm -hmm. was the greatest of of all uh, the Eastern star. He was the greatest of all things, and he uh, used his individuality to commit what is called the five great sins. We find them in the book of uh, of Elijah, uh, Ezekiel rather. And in the book of Ezekiel, it tells us that five times, and in Isaiah, it tells the same story, that five times Lucifer said, I will be like God. Now, here's an example of uh, a person taking that individuality and using it to rebel against the source. And because of that, Lucifer fell from heaven and was here on earth and then started ranging around, as James says in the New Testament, like an angry lion or hungry lion looking to see who can devour. Mm-hmm. And to undo that sin of Lucifer, the other great creator being Jesus had to come back to earth and live as an individual. And tempted by Lucifer in the desert, the three great temptations, the temptation of the eyes, the temptation of the flesh, the temptation of the pride of life, the three great temptations. But he resisted the temptation and chose the part of humility. So here we have, instead of... Uh, Judas and Jesus being brothers, we have, in effect, Lucifer and Jesus being brothers. One <laughs> is an individual and falls victim to the, um, the temptation of mm -hmm. using individuality in the wrong way. The other uh, uses it in the right way, in the way of humility and love and, and bringing compassion. And these two are at, at, at war with each other, Lucifer and Jesus, the devil, and, and the Christ. Mm -hmm. um, Old-time Christianity, we used to see this all the time, when pictured by a two angel, a, a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder, you know, fighting with each other. In a sense, I think 
that battle goes on forever because I think all of us have parts of Lucifer and parts of the Christ. Right. I think we are all one and the same. And it isn't uh, necessarily having them within us. It's what we do with it. And that's called spiritual growth, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we definitely all have the good and the bad sort of warring inside of yeah. us. Um, but one thing I, I think is um, you know, the constantly being at war with it, like, like you know, trying, trying, the harder I f try to be good, sometimes the worse my results are, you know, yeah. the more, or, or the harder I try to fight that negativity away, the stronger it becomes. Yeah. Um, so, so, so the, the an only answer is really letting go. I think yeah. of both of those concepts and, and following like a middle way of, of just acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. When you, when you say the middle way, that's, that's beautiful. That that's pure Buddhism right there, which I think <laughs> is one of the, one of the great differences between Christianity and Buddhism. There's a lot of similarities. Um, but the, one of the great differences is that in Christianity, we are taught that there's good and that there's evil. There's the devil and the Christ, and we are to identify with the good and flee from the evil. And if we don't, we're going to be punished, you know, that kind of thing. I think Buddha had a much deeper understanding of this. He said good and bad, uh, Lucifer and the Christ, they are two uh, poles of opposites of the same two thing. sides of the same coin and the thing is to find the middle way that goes between them and when he had that great teaching is when he ceased to become we ceased to be siddhartha and became the buddha the great teaching of the middle way where you go between the two poles of opposites to the point to that place where that embraces them mm -hmm. both uh and um you know we all try yeah but then we all we all fail. And again, in, in Christianity, we're told that when we confess our sins, when we say, yeah, I blew it, uh, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and our sins are remembered no more. That's what Christianity says. That's not what Christianity teaches, but that's <laughs> what Jesus said. Our sins are remembered no more. We, we mess up. All of us do. And when that happens, like you say, let it go. Say, yeah, okay, it was the wrong thing. I, I blew it. Mm -hmm. And let it go and try not to think about it again. Uh, good luck with that. I do it all the time. Yeah. I think about it all the time. But that, that's the idea. Let it go. I, I, I think you're you're onto something very profound there. Right. And, and also in the other direction, too, when people try to be too good, I think that's when it turns into righteousness and judgment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Though there's a lot of that. Out there. Just, just turn on the television, and you'll find all kinds of self-righteous preachers out there telling us how to, how to live. You know, and mm -hmm. it's a, it, it, it really is. It really is an adventure. This, this life, that we lead, and it's, it's certainly not easy. And I think, at a, at a deep level, I think people realize this, and I think that's what this is all about. Um, whenever we hear stuff about going back to a supposed golden age, you know, that's when everything was good. Mm -hmm. uh, if we could go back to that age again and get back into there, then you know, we could be great again, you know, that kind of thing. There never was a golden age, but 
there was a simpler age. And I think sometimes it's people that find it so complex that they just can't make themselves think about it. So what they do is look for a savior. They say, uh, I'll just follow this person. And whether it's a TV evangelist or whether it's a politician, that person will tell me what to do and then everything will be great right. uh, because it's easier. It's just <laughs> simpler. Well, life isn't easy. Life isn't simple. Right. It's complex. And we have to grapple with it. And the more we get down in the mud and grapple with it, and uh, the more we fight this, I love uh, uh, was Augustine's famous prayer. Uh, he when he first was a pagan, and when he wanted to become a Christian, uh, he took on Christianity, but he had trouble fighting with his sin because he actually kind of enjoyed some of the sin. So he said, God, mm -hmm. make me righteous, but not yet. <laughs> and then later on, uh, in, later on in his life, he made the mistake. He, he failed somehow that he thought was a great sin. And he got really petulant with God. And he said, thus, I will always do when you let me on my own. You know? uh -huh. <laughs> so it's a, it's a fight as old as, as the Bible, but it's uh that's what we're out here for. That's our task <laughs> to deal with it. Yeah. You know, I, I forget, I was interviewing somebody and he was sort of talking about the war of about good and evil and, 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 and Lucifer losing, you know, and I said, what, you know, I really don't want Lucifer to lose because he did give us like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> he could he give us some of those sins that, yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes there just simply is no answer. You know, there sometimes what's good for some people is bad for others. Yeah. Um, I was I was sitting on my porch one time watching a bunch of robins. It was a springtime day. Sky was blue. Trees were coming out. There's a flock of robins had come down. They were sitting on my front lawn and they were, you know, going hopping around the front lawn. And I thought, boy, it doesn't get any easy, any better than this. This is this is perfection for mm -hmm. now. All is happy. And then it suddenly occurred to me, what were those robins doing? They were eating worms. <laughs> now it's fine for your robin. But what if you're a worm? Bad for the worm. <laughs> angel comes down from the sky and picks up your mother and eats it, you know, eats her, you know. <laughs> I mean, great for the robin, bad for the worms. And it, sometimes that's just the way life is. We're, yeah. We, we try to do our best and someone's going to get hurt. I, I, I used to get a kick out of it when I was uh, at a, a pastor of a church that was uh, more rural than anything else. And when we had this uh, dry weather and the farmers, members of the church would be, they'd be praying for rain. But then the church had a picnic plan for a Sunday afternoon. Everybody, somebody would stand up and pray for sunny skies for the picnic and the farmers would all go oh boy <laughs> we're, sometimes we're just plain old caught aren't we yeah <laughs> oh. that's why I, I, like when it comes to prayer um, I, I'm always careful you know one, one I I just sort of ask the universe to do what's best because yeah. I don't know <laughs> I think it's the best way to be. I really, I because, really because uh, anytime I've even interjected my own will too much into my own life, it's just yeah. I've just caused myself headaches. So, yeah. so sometimes it's even better for me to stay out of my own business. Yeah, <laughs> besides Absolutely. getting the business of other people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's much better if, if you know, I don't 
you know, pray for things very much. But if I find myself in that kind of a situation, I find myself saying, you know what, um, what I'm praying for is for whatever comes, mm-hmm. may I be a part of it and do the right thing. Yeah. That's all you can do. That, that's the best thing to ask for. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Because yeah. like you, I, I don't pray often, you know, but when I find myself in a really difficult situation where, you know, I'm, I don't know what to do is like the best I can say is like, you know, just, just I want to do the right thing, whatever it is. I don't know what it is, but, but yeah. <laughs> help me do whatever the right thing is or say the right thing or be the right person. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I was on a, a, a show one time when someone was interviewing me and asking me about dowsing. And I was talking about how you can douse for most everything. And I was giving him expressions of sometimes maybe experiences of sometimes dowsing for water, sometimes dowsing for earth energy. And I I mentioned that you can sometimes, you know, douse um, just what's going to happen, the the future, I said. And I shouldn't have said it because he immediately said, okay, what's the stock market going to do next week? You know, and I had to try to say, it, it doesn't work that way. When we impose our intention, our intuition upon uh-huh. the upon the future, uh, I mean, who who knows what's supposed to happen? You know, right. it, it just doesn't work. Um, so I think he got kind of turned off to dowsing about that because uh, I should be rich if I could douse the future, and I can't. Nobody can. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, it's still, uh, you know, you just have to take everything. I think with a good grain of grain of salt. Uh, and realize that even at our best, uh, any information that I might give to somebody or somebody might ask me a question and I might answer at the very best, that's just my experience. Yeah. I'm certainly not saying my experience is, is the right one or the only one. Yeah, I've read tarot cards ever since I was a kid. And, yeah. um, like, and, and one of the things... Um, I will always mention to people, like, like, like well, people will question, like, well, I'm not supposed to know the future. Or I'm not supposed to know this, or I'm not supposed to do that. So you, you shouldn't be doing these readings. And I said, that's not how it works. I said, the only thing you're going to find out is stuff that you're supposed to find out. If there's stuff that you're not supposed to know, yeah. Yeah. it's not going to come out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you know what? Even physics has given us an understanding of that. Uh, you know, the, the, the whole idea of uh, the multiple universes mm-hmm. and Hugh Everett gave us the idea of every time a, a measurement is made or every time a decision is made or every time something is observed, uh, it yields information that splits and forms two different universes. So in one sense, we say, well, we want to uh, do the tarot cards or, or, or douse the future. Perhaps at that point, another universe comes into existence mm-hmm. where the other opposite happens. The other thing happens and we're left in this one with no knowledge of it. Uh, so, and that's pure physics. I know it sounds wild yeah. kind of thing, but there are conferences held by, uh, you know, physics types all over the world that talk about this very thing of multiple universes and different responses coming mm-hmm. out of every single measurement or every single choice. Schrodinger's cat was only the first to begin to take <laughs> us down that down that thing. So who knows? Uh, sometimes we do the wrong thing and we feel bad for it. Maybe we can take comfort in the fact that in another universe we did the right thing. And yeah. over there we're saying, yeah, I did the right thing. That was good. Yeah, I like the multiverse thing. One of the discussions that came up recently was 
uh, I was talking to somebody, and um, if enough people at one time made one particular decision, the same decision, and another group at that same time made it the opposite decision, would they actually separate like into both groups of people? Like one group of people would have vanished from the reality. Yeah, yeah. Well, according to, <laughs> according to the math, not just the, the philosophy, but the yeah. math, uh, yeah, that's what happens. Uh, uh, every measurement uh, causes different realities to come into things. And maybe that takes us right back to where we began about our purpose for coming out here on the edge. Maybe all of those decisions uh, figure into the idea of us experiencing every reality that can be experienced, mm-hmm. every possibility, every probability. And in this reality, we experience a particular uh, result. And in another reality, we experience another. And neither one of us are aware of what happens until we get together at the end of our lives, when it's all over, and we put that together and discover, oh, that's what would have happened had I done this, or that's right. what would have happened had I done that. So... And that's what I think. And we've also mentioned at the beginning too, it's, you know, we're, we're like almost like a, a tool for the source to help it have these experience return yeah. to the source so it can understand itself. Yeah. 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 We're in the, I, I, I find that a, a theologically frightening, but very true concept. I think we are in the process of building God, building source. Yeah. Building building Brahman. Uh, that's why more and more I'm more happy with the concept of the Hindu concept of Brahman because you can't explain Brahman. You can't describe Brahman. Mm-hmm. If you put it into words, you fail. I, I, I learned that lesson the hard way when I was teaching uh, world religions at the college level. Uh, the first semester we used to do uh, uh, Eastern religions. And so we would do Hinduism and, and Buddhism. Uh, you know, among among others. But when I was talking about Hinduism, uh, I would be talking about Brahman and Atman. And the Hindu concept is that Brahman is the unexplainable, right. it's consciousness, it's everything. And down here within us, there is Atman, which the probably the nearest English word that fits is soul or something yeah. like that. And the great Hindu concept was that Brahman and Atman are one. Thou art that, they would say. So I gave this, this great lecture. I thought I was really, really good on this, especially because um, I was not at that time very familiar with Hinduism, but I had a, a very good friend who was, who had a little shop and out back, he had a little altar in his back room where he would light candles every morning and do his meditation to him. Mm-hmm. And I went into his shop and I said, I'm going to deliver this lecture this afternoon. I want to make sure I got it right. He says, okay, okay, okay. So I talked about Brahman, unimaginable Brahman. I talked about Atman and the two are one. Thou art that. He's he's doing this smiling and he's nodding his head up and down and everything else. And, and I said, there, do I have it right? And he shook his, he nodded his head up and down as he said, no. <laughs> and I said, what? And he said, very difficult, very difficult concept, Brahman, you know, to talk about. Well, I went and I delivered the lecture and I thought I did a great job. I really did. Until a couple of weeks later, it came to time to give an exam. It was a public uh, university, public college, mm-hmm. so I had to give an exam. So I had a question down there, five points for the question. 
uh, described the Hindu concept, concept of Brahman. So kids all immediately started writing and they were describing Brahman to me. One kid, one of my best students, uh, handed it in and it was blank. So I had to take five points off and I handed the papers back the next day. And, uh, and he said, uh, he was sitting back there in the back row. He had a smile on his face like the Cheshire cat. He said, Professor Willis, did everybody answer question five? And I said, well, Roger, they at least made a try for it. You know, he said, you're telling me I'm the only one who got it right. <laughs> I had to give him five points on the exam for turning in a blank piece of paper. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. He was absolutely right. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's more and more I'm beginning to think about that, except that the concept of Brahman can be taken even one step farther if we think that, in effect, Atman is building Brahman. Uh, causing Brahman to grow, giving Brahman information about this material world. Mm -hmm. And it isn't just this world that's going on. How many other universes exist that have different laws of physics, different kinds of beings, different methods of being, different ways of being, and they're all being experienced by these different entities who travel out from the source. So it's like the source is building to the point where it will someday know everything. And what is everything? It's infinite in nature uh -huh. that'll keep you up at night sometimes oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah that that's fantastic um so, so definitely like i love having you on thank you so oh. much for being on today well thank you my my pleasure i always always enjoy talking to you gary i really do it's, it's always fun <laughs> um where can my listeners find you uh, probably the best way is just to go to the website, jimwillis.net. And uh, I also have a Facebook page and a YouTube page, but both of those are on the website. And uh, if you come, go to a contact page and you can send me an email through the contact page. I hope you do, because I love to get in touch with people mm -hmm. I, who I haven't heard before. And uh, Gary, you're doing, you're doing important work bringing this stuff out. <laughs> Thank you. You really are. And I appreciate it. And uh it helps make us one if we can communicate with one another, me with you, but also me with your listeners and yep. you with your listeners. It just forms this great big global community that uh, I think we're, we're very privileged to be a part of it all. Yeah, well, like I, I mentioned earlier, you kind of interviewing you kind of threw me down a major rabbit hole that I'll probably never get out of. Well, <laughs> thank you. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I haven't decided either. <laughs> Someday we'll all someday we'll all meet on the other side. We'll either say, "Wow, that we were right," or "What were we thinking?" <laughs> either way, it'll be a good laugh. Great, great. There you go. There you go. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate Thank, me. Thank you. I just gotta play the outro, and we'll wrap it up. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists 
was first imagined. <laughs> hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review and subscribe.